Welcome everyone to uh, the latest Isolation Insights event from the UK in a Changing Europe. Today we're going to be talking about global Britain. Before I uh, introduce our speakers, it would be remiss of me not to point out that we released a big bumper report yesterday. I've stuck the link in uh, the chat so you can download it straight from there. And I'm delighted to say that two of our speakers today, Rana Mitter and Laurie Friedman, contributed to that report. Uh, and uh, I recommend you all read it, basically. Uh, but today we're talking about a specific issue, which is global Britain, British foreign policy after Brexit. And we have a wonderful lineup. We've got Lisa Nandy, Shadow Foreign Secretary and MP for Wigan, Tom Tugendhat, MP for Tunbridge and Malling and Chair of the Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Sir Lawrence Friedman, who is Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London. And last but not least, Rana Mitter, who is Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China and Fellow of St. Cross College at the University of Oxford. Uh, our our panellists are going to speak briefly in that order. We'll have a very brief conversation amongst ourselves, after which we will be taking your questions. Can I just say, when it comes to the questions, please vote for the questions you would like me to pose to the panellists, because we're not going to get time to do all of them. And I'm a populist at heart, so I'll do the most popular ones first. Without further ado, Lisa, if you're, she's still writing, which is a good sign, over to you. Thanks very much. I am not the only person on this panel who has not done my homework. I'm looking at you, Tom Tugendhat. Um, thanks so much, Anand, and thank you for, for putting together this incredible panel. At this moment, when the UK stands very much at a crossroads, we left the EU in January last year. We left the transition period a couple of weeks ago. Um, and with the election of Joe Biden, the inauguration, of course, taking place Today, um, there is a, a moment where the world has the chance to turn the page on what I believe has been one of the darkest, most divisive periods of my lifetime. But for Britain in particular, that poses a number of questions. We have something of an identity crisis. The old uh, attempts to forge an identity around the era of empire will no longer do. I think it's safe to say that the uh, attempts by some to forge an identity that is more European than British have comprehensively failed. And there is a question for Britain about who we are, what we stand for and where we want to go in the world. After what the Prime Minister accepted himself before Christmas had been a decade of retreat, Britain needs to start thinking quickly about the role that we want to play in the world and how we're going to do it. So those are the two questions really that I wanted to address in the very short opening remarks. The world that Labour, a future Labour government would inherit in 2024 would be fundamentally different to the world that we inherited in 1997. Um, the, a friend was reminding me the other day that it was in 1994 that two world leaders first exchanged emails. Apparently Bill Clinton left his caps lock on um, and managed to almost cause a diplomatic incident by essentially shouting over email. But now at the click of a button, drones can be deployed in other parts of the world. And that points to a very fundamental challenge. We're richer than we were before, but we're less unequal. We're more connected, but we're more divided. Um, and we've seen great geopolitical changes as well. The rise of Asia, particularly China, the climate crisis, which is even more pressing now than it was in 1997. We've seen the ramping up of tensions between two global superpowers in recent years. And in that world, we are going to need friends. The UK has traditionally had three circles of influence, Winston Churchill's circles of influence, the Commonwealth, Europe and the United States. I just wanted to say something briefly about how we see our relationship with each of those. Firstly, on the Commonwealth, I think it is now broadly accepted across the political spectrum that we have to reach out and forge stronger relationships beyond Europe and the United States across the world. The Five Eyes Partnership remains incredibly important to us and has been particularly important recently in relation to developments in Hong Kong. We seek new partnerships with democracies in Asia and a Labour government would want to build that as a priority. But also we need to start thinking seriously about how we're going to safeguard and defend democracy 
democracies in the developing world. And that is one of the reasons why I believe the decision to cut the aid budget was so spectacularly short-sighted. When you look at the inroads that the Belt and Road Initiative has been making to some of those developing countries, um, the lack of alternatives for countries who want to safeguard their democracy, want to be able to stand up for issues that they believe in, has been a major problem and Britain ought to play a role in providing that. But primarily the relationship that we will be looking at in Labour is the relationship with Europe. We accept that we're out of the European Union, that question has been settled and as someone who spent a lot of time trying to get a Brexit deal over the last few years and still bears the scars from that, I'm glad that we've at least found a way to move the country forwards. The question is forwards to where? And out of the European Union, as we accept, our future still lies with Europe. Geography matters, um, values matter, and on trade, on the environment, on security, for all of those reasons, it will be important for us to maintain close relationships with our European friends and allies. The, 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 the part of the withdrawal agreement, that uh, the, the, the deal that is missing currently is around foreign policy, security and defence. That's something I want to see us start to talk seriously to the EU about very, very quickly. If you cast your mind back to the, um, the last use of chemical weapons on the streets of the United Kingdom, the Salisbury attacks, when Theresa May rightly moved very quickly in order to expel 30 Russian diplomats where did she go for support? She went to our friends and neighbours in the EU where she found that support willingly given. Ask yourself where would this government go for help? And I suspect for all the talk and all the bluster, if that were to happen tomorrow, they would seek support from the European Union. So those relationships are incredibly important to us. I'd like to see the government start with Ireland and repairing what has been a needlessly antagonistic relationship with our closest neighbour. The Good Friday Agreement is an article of faith and should not be used as a bargaining chip. And it is not in Britain's interest to do so, not least because the relationship with Europe is um, central to the special relationship with the United States. And I know that all of us are quite preoccupied with that today with the inauguration about to hopefully peacefully take place in the US. But with the election of Joe Biden, we have an opportunity here in Britain to strengthen and deepen that relationship and to base that relationship, not just on shared interests, but on shared values as well. That is why the trashing of international law was such a mistake, because the special relationship is based on both the US and the UK being safe, steady, reliable, dependable partners. And in recent years, we've seen that behaviour on display, unfortunately, from neither. But if that relationship is going to mean anything, and particularly with Britain out of the EU, um, we have to decide what we want from it. And when I speak to counterparts in France, in Germany, they are very clear about what they want out of their relationship with the United States. I don't see that same level of clarity here in the UK. So that brings me just finally to the last bit of that question, which is what do we want this influence for? Well, obviously, COVID is the pressing priority. The world faces a choice at this very moment about whether we break apart and we seek to continue to scapegoat migrants, close borders, scramble for access to the vaccine and the rise of vaccine national or whether we come together and start to fight this crisis together on uh, not just to get a grip of the health crisis but the economic crisis where we have the real prospect of developing countries seeing their economies falling like dominoes and the economic hemorrhaging that would result. On China we need a strategy instead of the inconsistent approach that we've seen from this government even now where it's widely accepted that the golden era must surely be over you hear a very different message from our treasury um, and from our business department than you do from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport and the Foreign Office. It cannot be right that on the one hand we're saying we don't believe it is safe to give uh, a significant role in our 5G networks to companies backed by the Chinese government, but on the other hand we're considering handing over large chunks of our nuclear power industry to com companies backed by the Chinese Government. So we need a consistent approach, but we also need a far more sophisticated approach than some uh, of the China hawks would, um, would, uh, would suggest. This is not the Cold War. We have to have a constructive relationship with China. There is no global problem that can be solved without the input of the Chinese government, whether it's COVID or climate change. 
But that means two things. It means that we need allies so that we can have that strategic, constructive relationship with China, but equally so that we can build the strategic independence that we don't currently have that is necessary to stand up for those universal values when they're under threat. And we've seen two instances of that very clearly recently in relation to the Uyghur in Xinjiang, which I know Tom is also very exercised about, and in relation to the appalling treatment of the people of Hong Kong, which cannot be allowed to stand. On climate change, this is the big test for the UK this year. Can we not only invite India, South Korea and Australia to the G7, but can we get Australia in particular to sign up to tough enough, fast enough targets by 2030 to set the world on the path to climate safety, on security, so that we can build alliances that allow us to turn the world's attention back to crises like Syria, which has shamefully dropped off the political agenda, but is a conflict that's now been raging for longer than World War II, so that we can start to tackle the corrupt network of dirty money that runs across the globe but particularly through the city of London it is no use railing against the regime that is persecuting Alexei Navalny if you are doing nothing to tackle the fact that the city of London is a haven for the dark money that sustains that regime and my last point Anand you'll be relieved to know is something that you're very familiar with because you've heard me say it a lot over the last few years but the great lesson of the last few years for me here in Britain with Brexit, but also over in the United States with the election of Donald Trump, is that unless you, unless you build a foreign policy that is rooted in the concerns, the needs, the interests of people locally, it is never going to stick. And what I've witnessed over the last decade is foreign policy that has increasingly been moving apart from the everyday needs, worries and concerns of the people that I represent in Wigan. When I look at my constituency post bag, the things that I see rising most on the agenda, flooding frequently every single year because of the lack of action on climate change. I see fraud cases on the increase with older people being targeted by organised criminal gangs. And I see the collapse of my local football club that happened because some wealthy financiers on the other side of the world decided to pull the plug on something that means everything to families, to the social fabric in a town on the other side of the world and a global system that was powerless or unwilling to stop that from happening. If we're gonna build a new global order and we're gonna to start to advance those values that I talked about and start to shed light, not might out into the world, we've got to root it in the interests and the consent of ordinary people right across the globe. Thank you. Lisa, thanks ever so much. Can I just, just before you mute yourself, can I ask you one very, very quick question? You were talking about wanting to revisit the lack of a foreign policy agreement with the EU. Does that mean that Labour in power would try and add to the agreement by negotiating something new? I think what I've learned very much about the EU, especially over the last few years, is that it is an organisation that works very much around structures. And without a structure or an infrastructure, it's very, very difficult to exert influence. The one example that I would give you, Anand, where I think this is really pressing is around sanctions. We've got a new Magnitsky sanction regime here in the UK. It's not tough enough. It doesn't cover the corruption that I was talking about, but it's still nevertheless uh, a step forwards. But sanctions only work if you work in step with other countries. Now, at the moment, the UK, there is no mechanism for the UK to even take part in those conversations. The Foreign Secretary is relying very heavily on the E3 alliance, mm. but that is no substitute for actually getting the EU to move in step with the UK. And I think particularly if you look at what's happened in Russia in the last few days, you can see why that's important. So we would seek a formal dialogue with the EU to make sure that there was a mechanism in order to achieve that. Real. Thank you very much. Tom. Wow. Thank you, Lisa. That was uh, that was quite a tour de force. And it won't surprise you to hear, actually, Lisa is one of the most sensible commentators on foreign affairs uh, in the House at the moment. And my so, reputation trashed. Yeah, sorry about that, Lisa. But and, and has long been a very good friend. We've spoken about lots of these issues and many of them I agree uh, entirely with. Certainly, uh, if I just pick on one or two, and this does, I'm not prioritising, I'm just picking on one or two. Things like the relationship with Ireland. You know, the first trip that we did when I took over the chairmanship of the Foreign Affairs Committee was to Dublin. It is the single non-discretionary foreign relationship we have. We must have a relationship with Dublin. We must have a relationship with the Republic of Ireland. It's our only land border. We don't have a choice. 
And so that is absolutely fundamental. And rebuilding that relationship is really important. Now, I happen to think that President Biden is going to help that process. His pro-Irish, his, his Irish roots mean that he's going to take that relationship seriously. And I know that means he takes the whole of the island of Ireland seriously, which means that there is a role, there is a voice for the United Kingdom in that. And his emphasis on the peace process, the Good Friday Agreement, as Lisa quite rightly put it, means that he has the commitment of peace in the United Kingdom, not just on the island of Ireland. Many of us will remember the bombs that went off in Warrington, in London and Deal and other places that really did bring terror and hatred and, and fear uh, to the streets of Great Britain, not just to Ireland. So I, I have to say, I think that's very positive. Now, what I also like to say, I'm sorry to ruin your reputation again, Lisa, what I also like is your absolute commitment to the fact that foreign policy isn't about foreigners. You've heard me say this before, uh, and foreign policy isn't about foreigners. It's about us. It's about how we deal with ourselves, how we shape the world to the advantage of the British people. Now, that's not narrow nationalism. That is actually about making sure that the values that matter to us are reflected in the world around us. We want to trade, to travel. We want to love and learn all around the world. That is absolutely fundamental to the interests of the British people. And in order to do that, we need to promote the interests of the British people around the world. That means promoting peace, cooperation, and many, many other aspects of international uh, cooperation that sadly have for a few years been uh, taking a little bit of a back burner. Now, there are really positive things to talk about. And I have to say, these are areas where I think the government, the government has really got on the front foot and needs to go further, but is definitely on the right path. The first of those is bringing the FCO together with uh, DFID into the FCDO. Now, I'm not particularly bothered about the structure. What I am interested in, however, is the fact that the Foreign Secretary is the lead actor for Britain abroad. I think this is really important. Now, whether you create a single department or whether you maintain two departments doesn't matter. What does matter is that there is a single voice around Cabinet for coalescing a foreign strategy for the United Kingdom. The next steps are of course to do with trade, to do with those elements of business, to do with those elements of justice and education, which bring it together. Because there is a real opportunity for Brexit Britain, as we now are, to have that voice around the world in a way that shapes lives. Look, if you look, for example, at education, the place of British universities in the global firmament is second only to US universities. This is a really powerful soft soft power tool for the United Kingdom. This is an opportunity to shape minds and to shape uh, people's perception of the UK, of course, but also to shape academic research in the path of liberty and freedom, which is fundamentally in our interest. We can do that. And we can do that by having the foreign, the foreign office using education as part of our foreign policy. That doesn't mean shaping academic debate. That doesn't mean silencing academic freedom. Quite the reverse, it means protecting it because this brings me on to China. We have seen China do all of these things in recent years. We have seen what a joined up foreign policy can look like by looking at what's coming out of Beijing. The Chinese Communist Party is leveraging everything from state debt, international companies, education, foreign students, diplomatic power, all of these tools are being leveraged to shape the world towards China's views, towards the silencing of criticism, the erosion of individual rights, the erosion of democracy, the erosion of privacy. And we are seeing this being promoted, whether it's through Huawei or through Confucius Institutes. This is what we are pushing back on. Now we can do it, but we can't do it alone. First of all, we need the foreign secretary to be empowered to have a British strategy, but then we need the foreign secretary to create a global strategy. And this is where I think a Johnson, Biden, and by the way, Macron and whoever replaces Merkel can come together with Japan, with India, with many other countries and really transform this. And this is why the D10 matters. Now, personally, I hope the D10 is a building block to a D11, 12, 13, 14, and so on. But the D10 alone is half the world's GDP. Now that is really significant because that's about regulations. That's about the boring bureaucratic elements of life that really transform how we live. It's about internet freedom. It's about, uh, it's about digital nationalism or digital uh, globalism. And this is where we need to get to because we are already seeing threats to it. If you see reactions from, for example, Indian politicians to the Twitter ban of Donald Trump, you are hearing people talking about the threats that having a Californian veto, if you like, on freedom of speech in Delhi could have for 
digital nativism in parts and in other parts of the world. We need to find a way of working together in order to create a large enough digital pool that we can actually have a counterbalance to China's push on regulations and norms, because otherwise we are going to work out, we are going to wake up, forgive me, and we are going to find ourselves with Chinese communist code literally encoded into the norms of everyday life in the way that we work. So that pushes us towards two more things. The first is we've got to get together and rethink how the world works. And we did this in the 1940s with the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which was designed to push back on the Soviet blocs trading encroachment into parts of uh, Eastern, eventually Western Europe, as they were planning. And that created a trading block big enough and deep enough so that we could resist that threat to liberty and defend the freedoms that matter to us. We can do the same. We can invent today a general agreement on data, a GAD instead of a GAT, that pushes back on this overregulation, this, this challenge to our ability to cooperate. And that's the first thing. The second is we need to look around the world at how we work together. Now, Lisa quite rightly spoke about the Commonwealth, Europe and the United States. Of course, those matter. India is, after all, half the Commonwealth. Europe, we've got to have a structured cooperation with them. Lisa's right on that. And the US, and we've already touched on that with Biden, I think is looking to a better future. But the bit that she, I'm sure, thought about but didn't mention just yet was the CPTPP, is the Indo-Pacific. That move into Indonesia, one of the world's most populous countries, I think it's the fourth largest population in the world, that move into the Philippines, that cooperation with Singapore and with many, many other countries in the region, Malaysia, Thailand, and so on, is an opportunity for us to embed the values that we know we all share and to make sure that they cooperate through the free world, through the rule of law, into uh, an inclusive system that sees individual liberties and individual nations able to express themselves. The alternative, sadly, is that we see the encroachment of Chinese communist power and we see ourselves effectively becoming more like provinces of a greater empire than independent states. Thanks very much indeed, Tom. Uh, I'm going to keep things moving now because there's an awful lot of questions. Please keep voting for your questions, incidentally, so uh, I know which ones you want me to pose, but we'll move on to Laurie. Thanks very much. Um, <clears throat> First observation is, uh, after all the divisions of recent years, it may be that we seem to be having more of a consensus uh, on the future of British foreign policy than one might have anticipated, which I think is good news. And I didn't particularly disagree with anything either Lisa or Tom said. Um, I want to make some observations, because that's what academics do. Um, and um, particularly on the American side, I mean, part of the crisis of British foreign policy over the past few years is that we uh, had difficult relations with the two key pillars, on the one hand with the EU, on the other hand with the US. And I think it'll take a while to recover with the EU. Um, the US was a different uh, position, despite the assumption that somehow Trump was good for Britain. He wasn't. He was very bad for Britain. Um, uh, we were never going to get a trade deal that was going to work with him. And um, it was an embarrassment and a, and a threat to democratic values and norms. Um, I think one of the things that the government has done right um, has been really since uh, people wouldn't, weren't prepared to bet on it, to uh, assume a Biden victory, or at least assume it was quite likely, and work pretty hard to align with Biden. Um, and I think the... Um, position that we're in at the moment is not bad in terms of being able to work pretty closely with the incoming administration. And it's quite notable that the EU has actually been more cautious. They've obviously, like everybody else, relieved that Trump has gone. Um, but the calls for strategic autonomy, which were prompted by Trump, um, are still quite there. And I think there's going to take a while before EU-US relations um, work themselves out and you can see and China I think will, will, I'll leave China to run China's going to be one of the big issues there because I think there's notably less enthusiasm for taking a hard line on China in parts of the EU than there is here um, for the UK strategic autonomy for the, from the US isn't an option 
we're far too intertwined with the Americans, not only on the intelligence side or the nuclear side, but just, you know, just look at, a, a, at the carrier program now on defense and, and how much that is integrated with the US. So we don't have the, we didn't really have the option of uh, trying, uh, although interestingly at one point, even this government was, was talking about it, of trying to distance ourselves from the Americans, we're sort of doomed to work with them. And um, this was becoming increasingly difficult where, when you had a president who was violating norms and didn't believe in alliances and the other things that we didn't share the values. So I think that that's point one is that we, we have to work with the Americans. Unfortunately, we have an administration now with a lot of um, normal people in it. Uh, competent people, it's going to be quite used to getting, take some time to getting used to it again, um, that, that, that will help a lot. Now, um, shared values and shared interests are, <clears throat> are obviously an important part of that. But what kept the, the relationship with the US going in the past was shared projects. We did things together, uh, maybe as junior partner, but whether we go back to uh, setting the terms of the Cold War, conducting the Cold War, ending the Cold War, humanitarian interventions, war on terror. Uh, not saying that all, all, the, all the joint projects were well or, or were well designed, but they were shared. Um, it's not clear what the joint projects are at the moment. Um, and I think this is, this is one of the um, uh, challenges for, for a global Britain. Not that we're not prepared to be constructive and, and useful, but it's not clear what the particular objectives are going to be other than sort of damage limitation, um, responding to events elsewhere and so on. There's no obvious big design. And I think that's actually a problem for the Americans as well. Um, so what, what might these be? Um, I think COVID is, is part of it. The UK turns out despite uh, having made a lot of missteps on the way to be now in quite a strong position on, on, on vaccines. The Americans are coming back into COVAX, which is good, which is good, which is good news. Um, vaccination geopolitics is going to be a big issue this year. Um, and uh, I think it's one area. I mean, in the past, I mean, one of the things that was so missing a year ago was the Americans taking a lead on how to deal with the pandemic. Every previous pandemic, they took a lead. This time they were absent and it wasn't uh, and it was partly not just Trump it was also incompetence on the CDC um, but so I think that is going to be a big issue uh, this this year and probably going on into the future. Uh, secondly climate I think that Lisa said quite a bit about that I don't I think absolutely right um, so the, the, these are helps to establish global norms um, but they're not geopolitical in the way the, the China issue is or what to do about the Middle East is. And I hear, here, I think one has to be cautious. Um, first, there's clearly no appetite, either in the US or the UK, or indeed in, in the EU, uh, for lots of interventions. Um, it doesn't mean to say they won't happen. Uh, and of course, you know, the French are, are struggling away with Mali without anybody particularly noticing what's going on there. Um, but um, if you go back to the 1990s, we assumed that a lot of our effort would be put into sorting out countries in distress in some sort of way, um, riven by civil war and so on. That appetite isn't there at the moment. Um, and I'm not sure uh, under what circumstances it will be revived. It got a bad name because of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but it doesn't mean to say that the sort of challenges that prompted it in the past won't return. Secondly, the promotion of democracy. Um, it's a good thing. It, uh, it really is. We think one of the positives to, out of the last couple of months is in the end the strength of American institutions um, and, and the ability to um, rid itself of somebody who, who clearly, uh, if he could have had a coup, would have done so. But the um, it, but it also is a warning against being patronising and condescending to other countries uh, that are struggling with their own political situations. And I think you can, for the reasons that Lisa gave, 
you, you can say that as well about the UK. We, we're not really in a position to start um, preaching to everybody else. But it's just difficult. I think Tom mentioned India. Um, you know, if you're going to start talking about human rights and so on, there's some interesting Indian questions there as well as as well as Chinese. Um, and so um, we've got to find ways of talking about these issues without assuming that, that, that either we're perfect our, ourselves or that you can avoid difficult compromises. That's obviously at the heart of the China issue, but, but it, it's going to be there. And I, and, and I think if I just to, to, to really start to, to, to wind up, I think one of the real problems of the, of the debate that we had on Brexit um, and the debate, debate generally on, uh, on foreign policy is we're very poor about talking about trade-offs. Uh, it, it's an advocacy uh, area so that if, if you're going to do Iraq, uh, all these good things will happen as a result and none of the, all the bad things can be avoided ditto Brexit and, and so on. And we know that there are trade-offs. There are advantages that will come as a result of Brexit, but there are clearly obvious disadvantages as well. Uh, and um, I think the, the challenge for a language, for those like Tom and Lisa who have to talk about foreign policy, is to find ways of pointing out that you can't have everything. There's, there's going to be disappointments and, and, and uh, unsatisfactory outcomes. Um, and that's part of being in a position where even with the US, even with the US, EU uh, uh, and the UK, even with the Indians and everybody else coming in, it, it's still not enough to force the world into a particular image um, or set of values. And I think in the period we're coming into, which really marks, you know, we're, we're now beyond American he hegemony. Um, it's a very different sort of world uh, in which we're going to have to do more, have more relationships with awkward customers and disagreeable customers. Uh, I think how you hold on to your values recognize and recognize your interests is going to uh, be very challenging and it may need a different sort of language about foreign policy um, as, well as, uh, as well as hard choices. Thanks, Laurie. And I think that for me, that applies to the language of values as well, because I mean, I'd add Philippines to the list of countries where, yeah, we might have common interests when it comes to China, but are we really going to talk about a community of, of values? Uh, Rana. Thanks very much indeed, Anand. And again, uh, I'm honoured to be on this very distinguished panel. I'm going to sort of join the chorus of approval and suggesting that everything that everyone said sounds so sensible that I'm afraid I'm probably not, I hope, going to break the, uh, the sensible consensus, but hopefully uh, uh, add rather than, uh, than, than dissent. And I want to actually pick up on Laurie's really important point about trade-offs, because I think when we talk about how global Britain is going to deal with China, actually the question of working out what the priorities are is something that is way overdue. And I'll start by just dividing it into three things. And again, I'll pick up on Tom's really important point here that British foreign policy has to be about Britain. I mean, it is about our interests. So point number one is what can or must we do with China? Climate change being one obvious example on, on that. Number two, what can we not tolerate China doing to us? And I've mentioned specifically as an educationalist, national security law and its extraterritorial provisions, uh, which can affect potentially, perhaps actually, what people say in think tanks, universities, anywhere in the world. And third, and this is the trickiest one, what China does to itself within its own borders, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, arrests of lawyers, dissidents, and so forth, all of which is a point of cross-transnational morality, but nonetheless is different from those first two questions on the grounds it's about what values we choose and who we share them with. And I think this is in the context of remembering that we have to understand China as it is, not as we might wish it to be, work out how we engage with it, and then be consistent, confident, friendly where appropriate, and I think friend, being friendly towards China is sometimes the right thing to, to do, and frank, and I think all of those are important. So let me give an example of one of those areas, and it picks up again on one of Tom's really interesting and important points about digital. China is already shaping technology norms in an extremely um, uh, top-down sort of a way for its own population. But don't forget, China's own population means 25% of the world's population. That's a very big chunk of humanity. So what is the role for the United Kingdom there? Is it largely oppositional? Should it be about stopping China setting global tech standards or 
Is it about getting into the Chinese market and using Britain's superb capabilities and technology and services to actually enter it? I'm not saying these two things are incompatible, but I think the Chinese might have something to say about which one they're more willing to let us do, depending on what attitude we take about the first. And where are our advantages? Legal services, healthcare services, fintech, how do we provide them? And which ones are more vulnerable to technological capture? I would say off the top of my head, financial services with more sunk costs, probably more vulnerable than perhaps legal services, which involve more human capital. But we can have a debate about it. The point is we need to have a more granular, more specific debate about these sorts of questions. In other words, do we want to say on that question right now, China's tech world and its values are so alien to us that we want no part of it? If that's the view, say it loud and clear, that's fine. But then simultaneously explain how does the UK become global Britain in a world where global means global tech. The global South wants China's technology now. They want it in South America. They want it in sub-Saharan Africa. They don't want it in five years or 10 years or when the West may have provided an alternative 5G champion. They need it yesterday. So answering that question gets to the question of SCDO, which I'm really glad, glad that Tom uh, brought up. It is well known in the China crowd that DFI was the single most admired department on the British side of any of the British governmental institutions. And actually there's been a lot of debate and interest in, into why it's been uh, subsumed into, uh, into the Foreign Office. That's a separate question from the question of how we take advantage of that to actually engage in one particular area where China actually amazingly has wanted to learn from the UK. Pushing that I think is gonna be a very important part of that more granular conversation. The British debate on this has become highly polarized. There are some people who think that without entry to China, Britain cannot prosper at all in emerging markets. I think that is not true. And I think that there are other emerging markets we can work in. But if we're making a choice to forego the Chinese market, saying we will not grow our current very small, I think about 3% share of trade, that has costs as well. And as Laurie said, there are trade-offs. We need to be more open about that if that's what we want to do. If we want to pay those costs, fine but say so and give specifics of how the slack gets made up. Because the other democracies in the region, South Korea, Philippines, Indonesia, may have all sorts of issues with China, South China Sea being the obvious one, but they are not going to stop trading with their largest single trading partner. They certainly won't do that just because the UK is asking them to do so. Which leads to my second point, that we need a lot more information in this debate. And I do often ask people in the UK who engage in the China debate, what is the extent of the, um, the knowledge base that they gather on China? Most of the debate, for very good reasons, is about values issues and human rights in particular. We all know that China is an authoritarian state, heavily repressive civil liberties, including criticism of top members of government, draconian legislation in Xinjiang, the uh, compressing and crushing of freedoms in many areas in Hong Kong. And by the way, I'm going to advertise my forthcoming piece in Prospect magazine on how freedom is being reduced in Hong Kong coming out in the next issue. Please read it, uh, especially if you're in Hong Kong at the, uh, at the moment. But China is also a, a tech superpower. It is also a country that somehow has managed to bring hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And its model is of great attractiveness around the world. All these things are true at the same time. And we need to understand a lot more why to be able to talk back about it. So, you know, I do ask people who rightly want to talk about China's human rights issues and abuse of human rights, how often they watch a Chinese television program, how often they go to look at Chinese social media and find out what everyday middle class Chinese are talking about in the cities. Because if we don't understand anything about the people to whom we're directing our values, about how they see it and how they process it, then it has about the same effect as people in China complaining about things happening in Britain, which we sit here blithely uh, ignoring on, on our side uh, uh, as well. In other words, you need to, even for an adversarial relationship, actually know something about the other side. And finally, we need to play as the UK to our strengths. And the UK has immense numbers of strengths. I always find it an irony that the things that the rest of the world cares about when it comes to us are not the things that often our political and other elites seem to care about. So the higher education sector, actually, Tom actually did mention that, and good, good for him. Uh, it educates over 100,000 Chinese students. And of course, we have to work out what we do about areas of academic freedom, where there is any danger from that. Personally, by the way, I don't think in the UK, personally, that Confucius Institutes have been such a problem as they have in, in some other countries, including some continental European countries. But that's a specific point we could um, discuss another, another time. But I think we need to reverse the polarity 
and be much more proud and active about bringing Chinese students to the UK, which has not happened in the US under the Trump administration, in this immensely powerful soft power initiative. Welcoming students here and making it clear that open, liberal and robust debate, including about China, is part of the culture they're coming here to learn from. We can also do things like making sure that, well, at least recently, I think things may have changed, but until recently, we might have said that as the BBC found itself under attack and being uh, defunded, or at least with threats of defunding, there would have been champagne glasses raised in two places, some sections of the Conservative Party, not Tom's part, of course, and in Beijing. I think that uh, as things seem to be stepping back from that, uh, we can also re realize that preserving the world's most respected broadcasting organization is a British choice, it is not a Chinese choice. Also things like keeping to international law, don't believe me, believe former Prime Minister Theresa May in the Daily Mail today, who points out that by trashing our own norms, we don't do any good. So the final word and the final message I want to take away, Britain needs to get specific, needs to get knowledgeable, and it needs to work out consequences. If we do decide we want no trade deal, Brexit Britain, having a trade deal with China that's closed, then why are we different from the EU, Australia and the US, all of which share our liberal values, but have the CAI, chapter and uh, US um, phase one, even if chapter hasn't been working out too well recently. If you think that doing a deal with our friends in the EU about letting violinists play in Berlin is too difficult to handle, then when you come to talk to Beijing and their trade negotiators, and by the way, you've seen that their trade team was just rearranged over the last few days, there's quite a lot about it in the news, you may have in DAT a very unpleasant surprise. So if you don't, if you, if you want to engage with China on these questions, again, CPTPT, which uh, Tom has mentioned, you know, if we're going to be in that, but we're not going to be in RCEP, why is that different in terms of our priorities in Australia? So are we talking to our Australian friends about that question of differentiation? This sort of level of working out what we're doing when we sign up for these agreements. We need to have much more of an informed debate about that, that particular question. China's not going to go away. It will be the second economy in the world for quite a long time, a very long time, I think. It'll keep its UN Permanent Security Council seat. And by the way, it's great that we have a UN ambassador from Britain now who was previously in Beijing and speaks fluent Mandarin. That could be, uh, could be helpful. But overall, I think the questions of understanding the knowledge and the basis on which we engage with China, that's the key lesson for whatever Brexit Britain decides to do in its new relationship with Beijing. Okay, thanks, Anna. Thank you, Rana. That was uh, fascinating. I want to sort of kick off the questions, I think, with, let's start with Theresa May, shall we? I mean, the, 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 most, the most popular question we've been asked is, is Britain no longer perceived as a reliable or trustworthy partner? So you see what, that, what that's getting at, but if I can, I can build on that. And is, is, there a, is there a tension or a connection between what we are seen to do internally and what we try and do externally? I mean, the Theresa May article is quite interesting, isn't it? It's saying, uh, threatening to break international law, cutting our commitment to international uh, development spending, uh, do not raise our credibility in the eyes of the world. So are we sort of, are we saying one thing and doing another, I suppose, is the broad thrust of both the question we've been asked and Theresa May's point. Is, is, is that fair? Tom doesn't want to go first, so someone else can I'll go, go first. first if you want. Right, okay. <laughs> you, you, I, I, I was just waiting for you to name me, but- uh, <laughs> I was gonna let you off the hook. No, come on. You never do that before. Um, <laughs> given that we're plugging things, by the way, can I just plug that uh, Rana is very fantastically coming on the 16th of February at 10 o'clock to speak to the China Research Group. Lisa, you'd be very welcome. I'm sure it'll be a fascinating discussion. Um, and so will anybody else, by the way. Look, um, I, I get Theresa's point. I really do. And uh, I spoke um, against the uh, erosion of the, or rather the changes to the treaty that we'd only so recently signed. Um, that was in the emerging uh, internal markets bill because I thought it was unwise. And I still think it was unwise uh, because it ended up um, putting a bill higher than the uh, return of the goods. So it was, it, you know, countries do, I'm afraid, break international law the whole time, but they normally do it in very minor ways that people don't notice. This was a rather flagrant uh, moment and, and I thought the cost was higher than the benefit. Um, and so I think she's right on that. What I think she slightly overstates, is that I think most people, and I say this having spoken to opposite numbers in places like South Korea and Japan and Australia, most people realise this, this is part of a really acrimonious divorce deal. Uh, and they do see it in that context. And they do realise that, yeah, I mean, there are things that both sides are doing at the moment that frankly, um, 
we wish they wouldn't, but once the divorce is over, let's hope that people behave a little bit um, more rationally. So I think there's a there's a there's a certainly a realization there. I think I think you know if I if I may, um, the things that really struck me uh, in um, over the last few years is quite how much people have raised again and again with me. Where have you been? Why aren't you back? Why aren't you engaged? And and this really does come up again and again because you know governments do make decisions at different times that are not always fully in keeping with the national ethos. Um, and the feeling for many around the world is we know who you really are. You are fundamental to the rule of law. You are fundamental to human rights, to free trade, to you know global regulation. But we need you back. We need you back at the table. And so I, I have to say, I thought Rana's point about uh, China regulation uh, and tech regulation was very interesting. I've heard, by the way, uh, very persuasive arguments from people in uh, Southeast Asia, I won't name them because otherwise it would become rather obvious, talking about how Alipay is already becoming an e-renminbi that is shaping the economic outlooks of many uh, countries uh, in that region. And that if we're not willing to discuss uh, FinTech and the, and the regulation of FinTech, then we're gonna find out that uh, within a few years, uh, the regulation has been done and we are simply recipients of it. So I think there's a, there's a huge amount of conversation and, and, and you're right, there, is, there are trade-offs and as Laurie quite rightly said, does anyone else want to come in? I, you don't all have to speak on every question, incidentally, but if anyone wants to come in on this, uh, Rana. Could I, I mean, basically everything, I mean, I agree with, <laughs> boring with everything that Tom's just, just, just said. Just to add, I think the area where the breach of international law has caused problems is in places where a country like China is able to use it as a specific example of why, for instance, the basic law that's come from the Joint Declaration in 1984 may no longer apply because if we are, you know, essentially arguing on the one hand that things have been signed as international treaty, launched at the United Nations, and they mean X, Y, Z, and then we do something that looks as if it doesn't stick to that principle, people who are not necessarily well inclined towards the UK are then, I think, going to pick that up. I think we don't need to worry about those who, in the end, as Tom says, know that, you know, we're going to come back into the room. It's the ones who I think are trying to change the nature of that room that we have to be more cautious about breaking these principles. That, that was basically my speech to the House of Commons. You're absolutely right. Either of no? uh, There's another question, I suppose I'm going to direct it at, at you first, Rana, because it's about China as, as well as an awful lot of questions about China, which is what, realistically, what can the UK do now with respect to Hong Kong? And is the Sino-British Joint Declaration effectively dead? Good question. And uh, uh, just in case it's the Chinese friends asking that, but nonetheless. Um, I think that we can do, uh, as the UK, uh, a lot of things that we are doing already and can continue to, uh, to, to work on while being I hope realistic about what can be done. So on in those terms, first of all, I think it's very important to speak out about it, to talk about the nature of freedoms in particular. I think sometimes actually, partly because I have spent a lot of time in Hong Kong and looking at Hong Kong, differentiating between freedom and democracy, which often go together in the Hong Kong case might actually be a useful division because I think making sure that the press stays as free as it can be. And the Chinese language press is much more constrained now in Hong Kong than the English language press, which actually is still, relatively speaking, quite free to, to speak out. The judiciary, which I think is the really important area of, uh, of concern. The, the new Chief Justice, Andrew Chung, very distinguished um, uh, person, but you know, new in the in the job, and we'll have to see you know how he how he does in this in this particular area. And of course, academic freedom. I'm particularly interested in that because of universities. The only place really within the PRC now where you can discuss Chinese politics in an academic sense freely is in Hong Kong. So I think keeping an eye on all these things and just saying really clearly that these are important things that actually matter for Hong Kong's status as a global city. This is really uh, this is really a key uh, a key thing. I think. Being honest, I think it was unwise for um, some of those who, for very good reasons of liberty and democracy, decided to get close to the Trump administration, which I think perhaps didn't have the human rights rather than bashing China as such at, uh, at, at the heart of what they were doing. I think President Trump's uh, comments revealed by John Bolton about what he thought about Xinjiang were rather jaw-dropping in that, in that context. But I think making sure that, as you know, Tom and Lisa both said, we have friends who are engaged in that discourse and making sure that we concentrate on what we think is important where speaking out is important. That that is one thing I think we can and we should do. Thank you. Does anyone else want to come in on Hong Kong specifically? Uh, thank you. I mean, I'll, I'll try and squeeze as many of these. I know we've got to we've got to stop at, at one, so I'll try and squeeze these in. But 
Laurie, there's a question that effectively is, is NATO still fit for purpose given the, the different sorts of challenges and threats we face uh, today? And if it isn't, is there anything that can be done about it? Um, NATO's fit for purpose. I mean, it, it, it's, um, I mean, the important point about NATO is that it exists um, because if, um, if you don't have an alliance already in place, which pulls everything together and in particular keeps the United States and Canada engaged with Europe, then what, then what do you have instead? Uh, you have lots of little alliances uh, coming together. Um, it, I think it'd be very destructive. And I don't think the EU would be able to cope with that. Um, so I, I, I think uh, having the Americans engaged um, and there's, lo there's lots of little conflicts that have been going on um, over the past uh, few years in Europe that is a matter, and you can include Brexit in this, that is a matter of course the Americans would have been actively engaged in in the past and they've just been absent from. Uh, so uh, I, 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 the, the important point about NATO is that there isn't an alternative. If you didn't have NATO, you just have lots of different arrangements, little alliances, and that can be very destructive. Alliance formation tends to be a pre-war activity. Uh, so I think it's just good that it, it's there. Um, and I think now it should be able uh, to do more because you'll have a president who's pro-alliances. That doesn't mean to say there, are, there aren't tensions. And I think there are, there are big issues, big issues coming up um, with um, Germany and France and its relations with, with NATO. Uh, one can imagine, um, uh, I mean, the Greens are likely to be coming at some point, seems to me, in, into, the, into a German coalition. Um, Macron, as all French politicians, has a, has a Gaullist inclination as well. Um, and I, you know, for, for, for many in the EU, the idea that the, the, it's, not, it's not really uh, a proper state-like entity until it does its own defense is, is quite a strong uh, is quite a strong thought. So I think there are there are big questions there. Um, I think they'll be moderated because most of the northern Europeans, um, former members of the of the Warsaw Pact, prefer the United States in many ways still to Germany and France. Uh, and I don't think they want to see NATO go away because they're not convinced any alternative will be better. But there's a tension there, and I don't think that will and it's an imp it will be a real challenge for the administration to deal with. Anyone else want to say anything about you're being uncharacteristically quiet, Lisa, which is concerning me. And then, well, I'm I'm really I'm really hungry. <laughs> I, I'm not supposed to say that, I, but I also um, yeah. I, I also actually um, agree with almost everything that I've just heard, which is a bit disconcerting. So I've been sitting here trying to think of a few things that I might disagree with. I guess I, I guess I would just say, could I perhaps go back to the question of Hong Kong? Because I think this is really one of those quite difficult questions that we've been, all of us on in every political party have been grappling with recently. And I think the row about British judges in Hong Kong goes right to the heart of this question. Of course, British QC should not be prosecuting pro-democracy uh, activists in Hong Kong. We all agree about that. But the role of British judges depends very much on whether you still think that there is a possibility that we can find some kind of negotiated diplomatic solution to what is happening in Hong Kong. If you do, if you think that it is still uh, a territory that has significant independence, if you think that there is a prospect of getting the Chinese government to move, then British judges potentially play a very significant role in trying to uphold the rule of law and mitigate some of the worst aspects of what is currently happening. But if you don't believe that that prospect is meaningful, then it takes you down an entirely different path in relation to sanctions and so on. And the, the question that I posed to the Foreign Secretary last time we had a statement on Hong Kong was which of these paths does the UK now believe that we're on? Because at the moment, we've done a little bit of each, but not enough of either. 
And as you can see from the fact that he keeps coming back to the House of Commons to do statements every couple of weeks and the situation has deteriorated further and we all lament and then walk out wringing our hands, but nothing, no, no progress is made. I think we are going to have to really get a grip on that. And I do think having Joe Biden in the White House, although I don't think it changes the US's stance in relation to China particularly, I think having a more predictable White House is going to be helpful in that respect. Thank you, Rana. Yeah, could I come in briefly off the back of, of Lisa's comment, which I think actually gets to a really important dilemma. And again, this is one of the more perhaps more controversial points that I do make in that prospect article that I've mentioned. So please do read it. Would our political, you know, our foreign policy be not happy, but content enough if Hong Kong reached a steady, I think the chances of Hong Kong going back to what it was a year or so ago are you know, minimal to zero. And that's a tragic, tragic thing. Let's make that absolutely clear. But if it ended up in a scenario that looked a bit like Singapore or a bit like Budapest today, or a bit like, perhaps even more stretched, but Helsinki under the policy of Finlandization during the Cold War. In other words, lots of rights compromised in the way that we would not accept in Britain, but a lot freer than the rest of China for a period. Is that something that we could live with? Or are we like some of the Hong Kong protesters saying actually it's all or nothing? And do we have the right to say that when it's not our skin in the game? I'm not giving a specific answer to that question, but I'm pointing out that at the moment in the Hong Kong debates in the West and in Britain in particular, we don't ask those questions enough. And it's partly because I think we don't have a granular enough knowledge of who exactly the parties are in Hong Kong who are running for the LegCo, which factions are parliamentary, which are ex-parliamentary, which ones have more kind of engagement with the uh, the, the the people at Exco and, and who don't. And these granular things matter a lot in terms of that, uh, that decision, along with the question that um, Lisa's brought up of British judges. That needs to be, I think, the next phase of the Hong Kong debate, along with a very clear statement of principle that when it comes to freedoms, we consider they're very, very important and will speak out openly and without embarrassment if we see them being constrained. Thank you. Uh, we're getting an awful lot of questions in about Brexit, which aren't really, I don't think, for this panel. But let me let me round things off by trying to incorporate Brexit into a, into a question, which is sort of in your opinion, does Brexit make achieving our international objectives more difficult or less difficult or is it ultimately up to us how we tend to use it and it's basically down to the government and you're relatively neutral on Brexit's impact. Tom you've unmuted yourself very keenly first. I, I have because this comes up again and again look I happen to think that cooperating you know I, I happen to think that in, in, in foreign policy if there's a table Britain should sit at it uh, pretty much as simple as that uh, we are one of the most influential powers in the world, and therefore we should seek to have influence uh, in the fora in which there is influence to be had. Um, but let's not pretend that our relationship with the European Union has been eternal. We've been in the European Union roughly the same length of time as the Hohenzollern uh, Empire in Germany. You know, Germany came back together in different ways. We're going to find different ways of working with Europe. Sometimes we've been invaded. Sometimes we've sent over... Uh, princes or princesses to be married. You know, there, there are a thousand different ways in which we've worked with Europe. And we've now got to find a different way to make that work. It'll build off some of the same things as ever. Laurie's already mentioned NATO. It'll build off, uh, you know, that element of, you know, the, 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 the Americans in, the Russians out and the Germans down. Well, perhaps not the Germans element anymore, but certainly the Americans in and the Russians out is still something uh, that we're working on. Uh, and we're going to find a different way to do it. it yes, it's a challenge. Uh, and that's why I do think that some form of structured engagement with our European partners is not a bad idea. The E3 is one, but actually I think it could go wider, certainly when you're talking about the Mediterranean, which has such important uh, security implications for our own uh, migrant flows and indeed for North African terrorism. Uh, you know, Spain and Italy really matter too. So I think there's an awful lot that we're going to need to find structured ways of doing. And that means really investing in uh, bilaterals, uh, you know, in national capitals. We keep complaining about Brussels, but we don't invest enough in bilateral relations with member states. Uh, and it means looking at how we upgun uh, our representative in Brussels. Uh, one of the recommendations that we suggested in the Foreign Affairs Committee was perhaps put a minister, uh, an actual member of the government, uh, a serving politician into Brussels as our representative. It is such a big and important relationship. It is political. It's not, you know, this isn't simply technical conversations about regulations. This is fundamentally a political relationship. 
and so having a say in that, you know, in whatever forum is, is something we're going to have to do. Thank you. Does anyone else want to come in on what is the last question, Lisa? Um, yeah, could I? I just, you know, so I, I haven't contributed loads because I just sort of think that that sounds broadly right. And I like the way Tom put it, that if there's a table, we should sit at it. Um, and I, I just sort of think that there's been a kind of curious pessimism that's characterised Britain's foreign policy on both the left and right of the political spectrum over the last few years. On the one hand, the Brexit debate sort of led a lot of people on the left to convey the sense that somehow out of the EU, Britain cannot survive. We just simply cannot go it alone in the world without sheltering under the umbrella of the European Union. And as someone who campaigned very strongly for Remain, who would still have liked to have seen us stay in the European Union, I just don't accept that that means that that is the end of Britain's role in the world. And actually a lot of my Leave voting constituents don't think so either. But then by contrast, you've got on the, on the right, and it creeps into the China debate, sometimes this idea that unless we shelter under the uh, auspices of the United States, that we just haven't got a hope of dealing with any of the major challenges that we face or, um, you know, going out and, and starting to stand up for our values. And that, particularly with President Trump in the White House, has led to some pretty gr grisly conclusions about the sort of actions that Britain should be taking. And actually, I just don't think that that is right and I don't think many of our partners see that as right either they're far more ambitious for us than that debate would suggest and they point to things like the BBC World Service that's already been mentioned to the role of our universities but also things like our specialist military expertise and they want to partner with the UK so I think there's a question here for us as we stand at this crossroads about are we prepared to raise our levels of ambition for ourselves and the role that we can play in the world and the answer to that has just got to be a resolute yes realistic of course about the size of our country about prioritizing ruthlessly the things that we're good at and where we can be of use to the world in order to build those strong alliances and get the most out of it for us as well as for others. But one area where I would suggest is ripe for cooperation, and especially with the inauguration of President Biden today is around green technology. There's a national security consideration around this. China has been investing heavily in developing green energy, and it would not be in Britain's interest or in the world's interest to be uh, completely reliant on the Chinese government for our energy security. That that accounts for the stance that Tom and I and others have taken around nuclear power in recent months. But there is a big opportunity here for us. And I say this to sort of bring it back to where we started, because I represent a part of the world in Wigan where within living memory, we powered the world through the dangerous, difficult, dirty work that people did in the coal mines. And we are immensely proud of that. And when we lost the coal mines, we didn't just lose good paid jobs, which underpinned the local economy. We also lost that sense that we were central to the future of this country and had a role to play globally. Now we could reconstruct that. It's no use just talking about leveling up. We need to think about how we start to restore pride and a sense of identity to many of our communities, which is also the challenge that President Biden is grappling with over in the United States. And green technology strikes me as an area that is absolutely ripe for that. I travel across the country. I see amazing work going on in some of our universities. Our, our young people in places like Wigan and Barnsley ought to be powering us through the next century, just like their parents and grandparents powered us through the last. And that is the level of ambition that I want to see for Britain, rooted in realism, of course. But unless we recover that ambition for ourselves, the rest of the world is not going to respond. Thank you. Rana? I just want to respond with a really short uh, word that may say I hope something bigger, which was that a few years ago, I remember someone uh, assessing when they saw two people talking, you know, on a train or on a bus or something of that sort, and tried to work out which country they were from. If they were laughing through most of the conversation, this person was absolutely convinced that they were almost certainly British. And I think if that, in some wider sense, is a perception that maintains itself around the world, and I think it does, that, you know, in the end, there's something about the British character that's distinctive and actually worth having, then I think we're probably going to be okay. Anything to add, Laurie? Yep. Um... You know, you're not going to cut me out yet. Um, I um, There's an oddity about uh, the consequences of Brexit in terms of foreign policy. Um, actually, it makes foreign policy in some respects, a distinctive foreign policy, easier. 
um, because you can be more agile and adaptable uh, if you don't have to agree everything with, with, with the rest of the EU. And I think we, we, we will see in a number of areas um, where it's possible, and, and we, we saw even last year, it was possible to take stances before the EU had reached a common position. Um, and that, if you do it properly, can be influential. At the same time, to a lot of the world, not just act of Brexit itself, but the arguments that we had and, and what was going on in Parliament looked like we'd sort of lost our mind, and uh, which was a, a very common comment. Well, you know, hopefully we've got over that now. We've, the decision has been made, the act has done, um, and, and a period of calm uh, would be welcome, especially after the, the traumas of, um, uh, of COVID. I think one of the issues that, that I keep, I think we've come back to, um, and which has been was highlighted be, simply because of what Brexit in the end was about, which uh, as a political uh, negotiation was trade. Um, and we, and you know, a lot of our conversations are about trade agreements and so on, which, which wouldn't have been the case before. Um, because they were in a way sorted. And it's highlighted the importance of these agreements. Um, but we have to remember that also trading agreements of one sort or another have been used as a geopolitical instrument. We look at the Trump administration in particular, the first thing it did every time it was crossed was to try to find a way of sanctioning. Uh, 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 and and you know, we're, you know, we're talking about that with Magnitsky, we're talking about that with... Um, uh, with China as well, and so whether trade, you know, is trade about uh, uh, economic mutual economic benefit, or is it a way of indicating pleasure or displeasure? It is going to be one of the things that, that we that seems to be a, a recurring theme, and we're going to we're not in a good position to start with. We need the trade more than we did before, and that I think is, is going to influence our readiness to uh, enter into negotiations and use trade as a political instrument. And I think you know, one of the things analytically we need to do is just to work out how good an instrument it is. One of the things about economic sanctions is that you do it because you can't do anything else. It's an easy option, but it may not achieve very much, uh, but it's symbolically, performatively, it may be important. So I think there's a debate there that, 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 that's lurking in a lot of the things we've been talking about that still needs to be sorted out. There's a lot of food for thought there. Thanks, Laurie. And thank you to all of you, uh, Lisa, Tom, Rana, uh, for what I thought was a really excellent session. I've got to finish off by saying, please, not you lot, but everyone watching, uh, complete the survey. I mean, you can complete the survey if you like and say you were very good. Uh, do look at the report that I posted the link to. You can see pieces by Rana and Laurie there. I think I'm right in saying that Rana has got a piece in prospect as well, but I'm not certain about that. Uh, we hope to see you all soon. And I can't leave without saying, my God, the Indian cricket team are good, aren't they? Thank you all very, very much indeed.